Good morning again. And the gospel reading is from the gospel of Matthew. It's here in your liturgy. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness. You know, this is the, the, the time in the church year that's called uh, the ordinary time. Uh, and it's the time that separates or that comes in between Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and Advent. And it's sort of sometimes referred to as the time of the church. And the focus during this time liturgically, uh, and you'll see the focus in the readings from the lectionary each week, the focus is on responding to the good news that Jesus is raised from the dead, not only raised from the dead, but ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, to begin his reign of king, king of kings and lord of lords. And um, the response of the church is to respond to the Great Commission and continue the ministry of Jesus in word and deed in the world. And so that's why you get readings like this from the Gospel of Matthew during this season of the church's life or this season in the life of the church. Okay, uh, interruption over. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. They were asked the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the, Can the, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not take a road leading to Gentiles, do not enter a Samaritan town, but go rather to the lost house, I'm sorry, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with a skin disease, cast out demons. You receive without payment, give without payment. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. God's people said, thanks be to God. Amen. God, we pray that you would open our ears, that we would hear the gospel, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we would leave here uh, with increased capacity to see the world around us through the eyes of Jesus, increased capacity to respond as Jesus would respond and have us respond to the needs around us, that compassion would become for us a reflex reaction. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We spent the last two Sundays talking about the mystery of the Trinity. It was Trinity Sunday a couple of weeks ago, and then we kind of had an overflow of, of, uh, of, uh, of a homily, and I, I cut it short, and, and, and shorter than it would have been, and then decided to do it as two parts. So we were, spent a couple of Sundays contemplating the mystery of the Trinity and 
tapping into the wisdom of the church as the church over the centuries has thought about uh, what can be gleaned from this mysterious revelation that God is one God existing in three co-equal persons. Um, And one of the things that we took from that is that um, it helps us understand at least a little bit about what it means for God to say, I'm love. You want to know who I am? I am love. God is love. And one of the things that the church has noted about the doctrine of the Trinity and the mystery of the Trinity over the years is that these co-equal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exist in a dynamic relationship of love. Self-giving love. Father, you love to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like this, the circle of self-giving love that is from all eternity and to all eternity. There's never a moment in our time, never a moment beyond our time in God's time that God is not existing in this overflow of love. And out of that overflow of love comes a beautiful creation. When something mysteriously goes wrong, God has already designed a way to love what has gone wrong. And we can be assured that every movement that God has towards God's creation comes out of love and is for the purpose of redemption and reconciliation. That's one of the things we noted when we were contemplating the Trinity. And it's a really good segue into what we're going to talk about this morning Because this theological gleaning from the Trinity, that God has no self-interest that does not include your well-being, I think you should really put that on your refrigerator. If you put stuff on your refrigerator, that's something to put on your refrigerator. God has no self-interest other than your well-being. And the reason why it's a good segue this morning is because... um, The same reason we can trust God is the same reason that we can trust Jesus to be our good shepherd and our king. And that's what is in the backdrop of this passage. Jesus looks out at the crowd and he looks and they're harassed and they're helpless. They need a shepherd, but they need a good shepherd. And standing behind this passage, there's a lot of conversation in the Old Testament about God's... uh, people being led by shepherds that are out for their own self-interest. Matthew, in his gospel, taps into that uh, using some Old Testament echoes that we don't have time to get into this morning. Uh, But Matthew taps into that in his gospel, arguably more than the other gospel writers do. Matthew is keen to sharply contrast Jesus with shepherds that are out for their own interests that don't include the interests of the people. Um, And so Matthew is always sort of in the backdrop when he's talking about Jesus as a good leader. Uh, The contrast is between Jesus and the way Herod ruled, and also, of course, the contrast between Jesus and the way that Pilate ruled. Remember Herod immediately when he is told about the coming of Jesus by the Magi, the wise men, Herod immediately devises a plot to try to get rid of Jesus. And he goes to hideous lengths, of course, in this unsuccessful effort. And Pilate, of 
you know, obviously is famous or infamous for abusing his power to even go against his own convictions. He thought Jesus was innocent, but, you know, Pilate can hold up his finger and see which way the wind is blowing and colludes with the corrupt religious leadership under Herod. And this is how Jesus is crucified. Matthew in his gospel portrays Herod and the elite ruling class under him and Pilate as being those leaders of the people who use power in hideous ways for their own self-interests. They're also shown in Matthew's gospel to be those who have no true or lasting authority. Herod doesn't succeed in killing Jesus as an infant. God raises Jesus to demonstrate that in spite of what Pilate does, including to have him crucified, God raises him from the dead to declare him king of kings and lord of lords. Pilate's lost, and so is Herod. Matthew and Jesus have this backdrop in view in this passage. Pilate and Herod are in the background of this passage, presented as those who use power to hurt. They're not motivated by compassion. Jesus is 100% motivated by compassion. And that is one of the reasons why he is worthy to be king. It's one of the reasons why he is worthy of our praise. That's one of the reasons why he is worthy of our setting aside our own personal agendas to align with Jesus' agenda in the world. Because Jesus' reflex reaction to the pain and suffering in the world is immediately compassion. Compassion is really underrated in our world today. I mean, how many people talk about, oh, I'm going to write a book on how to become more compassionate. I'm going to sell millions of copies, right? Um, Compassion doesn't sell. Compassion doesn't excite people. When you're suffering, you're really glad to see it show up. Uh, But if you're not, it's just not, doesn't have much currency in our economy, in our political world, the zeitgeist of our times. It's much easier to grandstand about whatever we think is wrong in the world. But compassion does not wait to make an argument about social policy. Compassion does not wait to diagnose why things are so broken in the world. Compassion is like the Good Samaritan in that famous parable in the Gospel of Luke. The Good Samaritan is confronted with a naked man. Slowly, and no ID, okay, no ID, naked, slowly dying on the side of the road. He may be rich. He may be poor. He may vote for Biden. He may not vote at all. He may vote for Trump. He's naked. He's dying on the side of the road. You have no idea what his life is like. He may be somebody that you would normally grab a beer with. He may be somebody that you would run away from if he was not naked and dying on the side of the road. He may be somebody you want to live next door to. He may be somebody you'd like to deport. That's why that story is so powerful. Because it laser beams us right into the heart of God. The Good Samaritan is God in that story. Full of compassion. Reflex reaction. Compassion. Compassion. Contrasted with those who walk past the man. 
I'm assuming because of fear that they might find out who he is and not want to have helped him. The whole point of that story is a portrayal of the compassionate heart of God. It is the response of God immediately without hesitation. And it is why Jesus is a good shepherd. He looks at the people harassed and helpless, and he is full of compassion. Now, a comment about the people who are harassed and helpless. The people that Matthew describes hanging around with Jesus, they are more or less common folk. And common folks really don't fare well when those who hold power do not care well for them. Common folks have no power, but it is with common folks that Jesus makes his home. He has compassion for them. He alleviates their suffering. He gives them hope. And in the church that will be gathered around Jesus' followers after Jesus has ascended, people will organize their lives around compassion for the weak. And power and wealth in this early church community will begin to flow in the right directions. In the early church, the rich, the wealthy, and the powerful rearrange their lives to live compassionately towards those who desperately need compassion. The New Testament warns against, and I would argue prohibits, the marriage of the church with secular political power in any way, shape, or form. However, the New Testament, bearing witness as it does, the only one true king worthy of being called a king, is a profoundly political manifesto. Political in this sense, because the politics of the New Testament is all about what we as Christians do and how we as Jesus followers live in this world as Jesus followers. If every follower of Jesus in Chicago, for example, were to live more faithfully into the patterns of the compassionate King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Chicago would become a profoundly different city. Last Thursday night, a small group gathered to cook at Breakthrough's Women's Shelter. This Tuesday evening, a small group will gather at the Pileman Home to cook again for the migrant families. A few weeks ago, we dropped off a check at Breakthrough to help fund their food pantry. When I speak like this about all Christians in Chicago living more faithfully into the patterns of the compassionate shepherd, um, I know there's a temptation to kind of freeze in your tracks and think, okay, what am I really being asked to do here? And, and if, I, if I have trouble doing it, does that mean that I'm a bad person? I think that in our heads is so much guilt and shame, especially for those of us who grew up in the church. It's really hard to hear challenges and exhortations to follow Jesus more faithfully without worrying about what it means if we struggle to do it. Well, we all struggle to do it. Absolutely, we struggle to do it. But we come here each week to be reminded that, as the Belhar Confession says, and I'm going to not remember it exactly, but 
But the church lives in the world in a way to show the world a new way to live. And that's what we're here to do. And it feels really good when you get an opportunity to do that and you see that it can make a difference. And that's one reason why we're so excited to take responsibility for our future and grow our church. And you hear so much lately about what we're doing next and what we need you to do to help us get there. Uh, One of the reasons we're so excited about taking responsibility for our future and growing the church is because so many people are harassed and helpless. So many people are harassed and helpless. And when those who worship Jesus, when we organize our lives according to the compassion of our Lord, we flourish and our communities flourish. Mission of Grace Chicago is to actively seek the good of individuals and the welfare of the city by embracing the good news of God's redemptive promise. May God enable us to do that more and more and more and more. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.